The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles, please. And the book of the Psalms, Psalm 136. Nope, Psalm 135, that's what it was. Psalm 135. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it is, or he it was, sorry, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel." Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idol of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. That's a great psalm, isn't it? You can almost just sense the psalmist's joy as he was just penning those lines. And his heart was going upwards to God in praise and worship to God. I'll read you a couple of verses and see if you can pick up the the theme of the the message tonight or the the study tonight. In Psalm 40 and verse 8, the psalmist writes, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is written, written with my heart. Psalm 135, verse 6, we just read it. Whatever the Lord pleases, he wills, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Matthew 6 and verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 12 and verse 50, the Bible says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so, Colossians 1 verse 9, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you didn't pick it up, it's about God's will. What is God's will all about? 
God's will is that attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all of creation. That's what Wayne Grudem wrote to describe or try and explain and define the will of God. God's will in general can be seen like this. Scripture frequently indicates that God's will is the final or most ultimate reason for everything that happens. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, we looked at this almost a year ago when we began a study in Ephesians. He says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The word all things is used frequently by Paul to refer to everything that exists, all of creation, all of God's works. And the works there where he says, to the purpose of him who works all things. Works means brings about, it produces. And it's a present participle, which you probably don't care about. It's in Greek anyway, it's grammar. And it suggests continual activity. So you could actually say that God is continually working all things according to the counsel of his will or continually bringing about all things. God is onwardly working to bring about all things according to his will. We said at the beginning of Ephesians study that God is working to bring all things under one head, even Christ Jesus. That's his purpose. His goal is to gather all of creation in the coming day, like we were praying about a few minutes ago, and all the nations, all the peoples of the world, gathered together under Christ, under one head. Therefore, whatever God does is according to his will, is for our good and and his glory. And we see the connection to last week. He's working all things for our good and his glory. More specifically, you could say that all things were created by God's will. The Bible says in Revelation 4, verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God created everything. I think one of the creation accounts, I think it's in John or maybe even Hebrews, he says, there's nothing that was created that you didn't create. In other words, every single thing, John states at first as a positive and then also as a negative, that nothing exists that God didn't have a hand in creating. People say to me sometimes, I'm, you're kind of a creative fellow. You work with wood or I do a little bit of artwork and I mess around with photographs and that kind of thing. And the reality is I'm not all that creative. In fact, I'm not creative at all. Nobody really is creative. All we really do is take what we already have and reshape it, reform it, rework it, and put the charcoal on the paper in the right lines. And if you're Jude, it looks like a beautiful artwork. And if it me, it looks like a kid's been scribbling on the page. And we're just reshaping. But God is truly creative because he created everything. God's works, his will included creating everything. His human governments all came about by God's will. The Bible says in Romans 13:1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Puts all of a sudden some of our politicians in a different light. They got there because God put them there. And we think, you know, if, if I was the Lord, I wouldn't have picked that guy. 
And he said, well, it's a good thing we're not the Lord because God has a purpose and a plan in putting those guys there. And yes, we plead with God to raise up the right men and the ones that we want to see in the governments of power. But we trust God that he knows what he's doing when he puts those men there. All the events connected with the death of Christ were according to God's will. The early church believed this. And in their prayer in Acts 4, they said this. They said, for truly in the city... They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What does that mean? That means that both as these wicked men with their evil intentions came against Christ and God's predetermined plan and his delivering Christ into their hands, everything was working together to accomplish God's glory and our good, even the details of how he was going to die and the different parts of his crucifixion. We see them prophesied way back in in Psalms and Isaiah, sorry. It wasn't merely the death of Christ, but all the details associated with it happened according to the will of God. Christian suffering is according to the will of God. The Bible says in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to us that for the sake of Christ we should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Then 1 Peter 3.17 kind of fits together with it. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It is part of the Christian's call, the Christian's life, is to prepare ourselves that God has ordained not only that we believe, but also that we suffer for his sake. All the events of our human lives are to be subject to God's will. James 4.13 says this, 13 to 15 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a town and such a town and, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I don't mean to be irreverent, but someone once said to me, you know how you make God laugh? And I said, how do you make God laugh? And he said, just tell him your plans. (laughs) Because he's got a different plan. And you think you're going to go here and do this and do that and accomplish that other thing. And God knows that tomorrow your life will be taken. Or God knows that tomorrow you'll be sitting in a hospital ward having been in a car accident. Or God knows tomorrow something totally different that you have in mind is planned. All of our wills, all of our lives are to be subject to God's will. Well, in the Bible there are different distinctions in, in aspects of understanding God's will. There's some distinctions to help us understand various aspects of his will. Just as we humans can will and choose and decide with various motives or mindsets. It's not the best word, but it's kind of the best I could sort of figure out. Well, so can God. We can will and desire things with a great eagerness or with a great reluctance. We can will or desire things happily or with regret. We can will or desire things secretly or very much publicly. God also, in the infinite greatness of his personality, is able to do, to will different things in different ways. And you look at four distinctions of his will. Some will go quick and some a little slower. But they're these. Number one, God's necessary will. Number two, God's free will. 
Number three, uh, sorry, number two, God's free will. Number three, God's secret will. And number four, God's revealed will. God's necessary will includes that all he must will according to his own nature. What, God, what must God necessarily will? Well, there's only one thing really that I could think of. God eternally wills to exist. What's the Bible say? Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I am that I am, meaning I exist because I will to exist. God necessarily wills to exist, but he can never choose not to exist, and he can't choose to change. He just simply chooses to exist because he is God. That's God's necessary will. Then there's God's free will. God's free will includes all things God freely wills without any necessity and without any compulsion. So God is not forced to do this. It's simply his free and delightful will. Number one, there was God's free but unnecessary will to create the universe. There was nothing in God's nature that required him to create anything. I read a book one time. I think the writer had good intentions. I honestly believe that. And halfway through, he just said, right in the middle of it, God created us because God needed us because God was lonely. And I went, ah, doing so great. Got a big black Sharpie marker and just scratch it up. Because the rest of the book was great, but that one statement was completely wrong. God exists. He's perfectly happy and perfectly joyful and delighted in his own existence. The three members of the Trinity are perfectly in love and delight with each other, one with the other. He didn't need to create us. And so out of an absolutely free will, he just decided to create all of creation. There was also God's free but unnecessary will to elect and save and justify and sanctify and glorify us in the day to come. There was nothing in God's nature that required him to decide to redeem from sinful man a people for himself. God freely and unnecessarily willed to create and redeem. I don't mean unnecessary in like a bad sense. I mean he unnecessary, that nothing compelled him to do that. God freely willed to create and redeem us. Remember, within the Trinity, the members of the Trinity, there's love and fellowship and the glory exists in an infinite measure for all of eternity. The Godhead had no need whatsoever of us. God wasn't lonely. He didn't need to create us, but he, he wanted to. And yet God freely chose to create the universe to redeem us for his glory. God freely chose to do this so he could display the magnitude of his glory. He was so glorious, he is so glorious, and he created all of us so that we could see the wonder and the beauty of his glory. Isn't that amazing? He didn't need to. He just said, you know what, I want others to see how glorious I am. He didn't need us to say, wow, you're holy he had all the realms of the angels, well, after he created them, to say that. He didn't need us to, to love him and want him and desire him. He didn't need us to trust him. He just desired to let others trust him and see his glory. It was grace unmeasured. And you know, I have to just aside for a sec. Studying through all these different attributes and reading through and just going, wow, over and over again, my heart's just been moved to worship, realizing how magnificent our God is. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the biggest problems of Christianity today, I think, is our vision, our view, our idea of God is just too small. We think God is like us. And yet God is incomprehensible. There's nothing we cannot, nothing we can grasp fully of who God is. God freely chose to create us and, and, and save us for his glory. The Bible says in Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What was our purpose in life? To glorify him. Why did he create us? To glorify him. He created us so that from him and through him and back to him, he might receive glory from us. Not that he needed it. In Isaiah 43, verse 7, the Bible says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made, he created us to glorify him. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, the Bible says this, Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. We exist for God's glory. Nothing else. And the wonderful thing is that when we delight in God, when we're absolutely satisfied in God, it is the greatest joy, the greatest thrill that anybody can ever understand and experience is resting in and being satisfied in God. In Ephesians 1 verse 12, we read it before, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Revelation 4, I believe it's the, the elders and the creatures fall down. And they say, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Well, that's God's necessary will, his own will to exist, and God's free will, his freeness, free will to create all things and save us. There's also God's secret will and God's revealed will. Even from our own experience, we know we're able to do and will some things secretly and then only later make others known to what we're doing. When Heather and I got engaged, it was a secret for the first couple of months. And then we got a ring and everything was ready to go. And when we announced our engagement and everybody was, well, most people were happy, some people weren't. You know, it's, there's always that one guy that doesn't like you getting married. And, and, but you know what? It was secret for a time. And then we revealed it. Sometimes we let others know what we've planned beforehand, and other times we keep our plans secret until the event has been willed or happened. This distinction between aspects of God's will is evident in Scripture, and one of probably the best verses, Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. The Bible says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God reveals some things to us for the purpose of our obeying His will. He lets us know what He delights, what He desires from us. The point there, that we may do all the words of His law are so critical. He reveals them, not just to show us something. He also reveals things and has an attachment to it of a command or a desire for us to fulfill. As many other aspects of God's will, He does not reveal there's details about future events. There's specific details about hardships and blessings and persecutions that God does not re reveal to us. With regard to those secret things which God does not reveal, we're simply called to trust. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, God does not tell us the day or the manner of our death. We simply trust Him. 
And we keep living for him faithfully, knowing that one day our death will be there. I watched this great movie. Um, it's very long. It's called Gods and Generals. And it's written about, you know, the name sort of makes you frown a bit, but it's written about uh, the American Civil War. And it's very well crafted. It's sort of stories and, and uh, scenes from both sides of the conflict. And what's really neat is it, it was uh, produced by Ted Turner, who at the time was married to the Fonda girl, uh, Jane Fonda, that's it, yeah. And I, as I understand, she made some profession of Christianity. But what was neat about this movie was all the way through it, he used uh, recorded writings and accounts, and he put them right into the dialogue. So as these guys are speaking, they're actually using written records of what the real people said. And there's one scene where uh, Stonewall Jackson's sitting on his horse and the first battle of Bull Run, and they're all there, and the Stonewall Brigade, as they were called, were standing absolutely firm. And Stonewall Jackson was this mountain of a man. He had sat on a great big horse, and he sat there on his horse, and he had all these aide-de-camps on either side of him, and he had a, a notebook and a piece of paper, and he would write his orders, you know, uh, Fifth uh, Virginia horseman or something, wheel left, and he tear it off, and the, and the aide-de-camp would spin away on his horse and deliver the command and come back. And that's how they communicated. They didn't have any mobile phones or anything. And so as he's standing there, and he, he was just so calm, and the bombs are going off, and the shells are coming over, and their bullets are, you can just, as they're filming, you hear, the bullets are going by him. He's just sitting there as calm as can be. And the battle ends, and he's walking through the fields, and he's just, he, he's, he's so overcome with emotion, all these men that have died. And he's stopping to try and comfort one who's wounded. And one of his aide-de-camps come up to him and he just, he finally in frustration, he says, Sir, he said, how can you do it? How can you sit on your horse as calm as can be, the bullets whizzing around your head like blowflies? And he said, well, and he, I can't quote exactly from memory, but he said something to the effect of, God has fixed the day of my death. I need not fear what day that will be. I must only live every day as if it will be my last, and one day I'm sure to be right. If all men lived in such manner, they would all fight in the battle so much more determinedly, or something to that effect. Not the exact words. I thought, you know what? He got it. He absolutely got it. God's fixed the day of my death. I don't need to worry about that. I simply trust him. I simply follow what he's given me to do. God doesn't tell us the hardships and the sufferings and the sicknesses, and so we simply trust him and know that he knows better than us. God's revealed will usually contains commands and prohibitions, etc., and the revealed will of God is God's declaring what we should do and what God specifically commands us to. And the fourth one, God's secret will, includes his hidden decrees by which he governs the universe and determines everything that will happen. God does not ordinarily reveal those decrees to us except in biblical prophecies of future events which we're to prepare for. And you can see those all through the Old Testament. So those decrees really are God's secret will. We find out what God has decreed when those events happen. There are several instances in Scripture where God mentions His revealed will. For example, in the Lord's Prayer, the petition is, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer that people obey God's revealed will. There would be, it's not senseless, but it, it would be sort of, uh, 
I don't use the word unwise or pointless, but it might not be the, the best thing to pray that God's secret will be done because God's secret will, will be done. There's no question about that. God is going to accomplish that. So when the Lord commands us or teaches us, pray, your will be done, he's calling for people to pray that God's revealed will will be done by his people because he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the manner of doing God's will is in perfect obedience to God and faithfulness and love for God. When we see it that way, we can use Jesus' prayer as a pattern for us. We can pray on the basis of God's commands in Scripture. There's nothing wrong at all. In fact, I heartily commend it to cry out to God that every person in Noble Park would repent of sin and trust Jesus Christ for their Savior. You say, why is that? Because God's revealed will shows us that it's his will for all people to come to know him, to be saved. We'll see that verse in Sasek. We pray that people would repent of sin. We pray that people would trust God for salvation. We pray that they would love him and so on. A little bit later, Jesus says something like this in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Once again, the reference must be to God's revealed will, namely the moral law of God that Christ's followers are to obey. We're to obey. Obedience to God's revealed will is required for salvation. We looked at that last week, and I really wanted to drive that home for all of us. The idea that salvation is, is obtained by repentance and faith in God and obedience to God's commands, none of those can be taken out and still understand what salvation is. Yes, there's an order. Definitely obedience follows faith, but faith and obedience both must be there. In Ephesians 5.17, the Bible says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, the revealed will of God. In Romans 2.18, Paul commands us again, And know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. It's again the revealed will of God. And there's a couple of difficult verses. How do we understand these? 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3.9, you have something similar. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I have friends who come from the Arminian school of theology, and they grab those verses and say, there you see, you can't have this idea of you know, God electing and God choosing. How do those verses work? Neither of those verses can God's will be understood to be his secret will, his decree concerning what will certainly occur. It's because the New Testament is clear that there will be a final judgment and not all will be saved. You look at the, uh, Revelation, what do we see there? Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they're saved. Those whose names are not written... They, they're not. They're cast away. So there certainly is some who are lost, some who don't know Jesus as their Savior. It won't go to heaven. So the best way to understand those words, those two verses, and by the way, 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all people to be saved. You can take that same word and put in there, God wills all people to be saved. Take 2 Peter 3, verse 9, not wishing that any should perish. You could translate that equally validly as not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's best to understand it as God's revealed will. You say, now, wait a minute. If it's God's revealed will, why does it not come about? 
If whatever God wills comes about, how can that be said there as God's revealed will and not happen? Let me point you this way. It is God's revealed will that every single one of us keep his law perfectly. That's clearly the Old Testament. You can see it all the way through. How many of you, hands up, have kept God's will perfectly, God's law perfectly so far? You guys are in a lot of trouble because you have not obeyed God's will. How many of you kept it for the last five minutes? We'll give you a break. How about the last 30 seconds? How about the last tenth of a millisecond? None of us, right? So when he says it's God's will that all people would be saved, it's his revealed will, and just like the law, which is God's revealed will, even though it's his desire, it's his will that all should be saved, it doesn't actually come about. Because men disobey God's will. They hear the command, repent and believe and be saved, and they say, no. And that's not a lack of faith. That's a deliberate choice. I will not believe. Why does man go to hell? Because he will not obey. And obedience comes out of faith. And so when God says he desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, it's his revealed will that all men will be saved. But we know that not all men are saved because men disobey the commands of God. And the command of God is repent and believe and be saved. But it's pleasing. It's also something here that's really cool. Just like the law in the Old Testament shows us what God delights in and what pleases the Lord, it's pleasing to God to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Right? It's pleasing to God to love our neighbor and love our enemies and love those who are in the same church with us. It's pleasing to God to not have any other gods before God. It's pleasing to God not to commit adultery and idolatry and, and all the rest of those problems in, the, rest, in the, the law there. That pleases him. And his revealed will just shows what he delights in and what pleases him. And sadly, men, because of their disobedience to the command of God to believe, will not be saved. Well... I've spent all that time looking at that. What do we do with this? And you know, some of these attributes give you lots of ways in which you can put them into application, live these things out. But you know what? As I sat there and thought about, what do we do with this as a church? I mean, this is God's will for us to know and understand that. He actually says in Romans 2.18, know his will. And Ephesians 5.17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So it's absolutely applicable for us to look through the scriptures and understand what God's will is. But what do we do with this? Well, as I started reflecting on it, I realized, you know what? One of the biggest things is just worship, which is why I read that whole of that psalm, because I wanted to focus on the one verse... Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. That's speaking about God's will. But the rest of the psalm is so overflowing in praise. And all the things that it shows in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the, excuse me, all the way down, is all the things that God has done. And the response to the people of God is, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, house of Israel. Bless the Lord, house of Levi. You who fear the Lord, bless him. So what do we do with all this about God's will? We worship and we trust. We marvel, we wonder in amazement at God. I said it before, I'll say it again. Our view of God is too small. And we start reading through the Bible and start maybe pick up a theology book and read through the attributes of God. It'll raise and enlarge your vision of God so much bigger. 
We marvel and we wonder in amazement at God who by his own necessary will exists unchanging in his essence and being. None of us can will ourselves to exist. Some of us can't even will ourselves to die. And people who try and commit suicide and fail, some sadly do succeed, but some who try and fail. Nobody can will somebody else to live. Nobody can will. We cannot will ourselves to live. But when we stop and realize and just try and think around, God exists by the force of his own will. It causes us to marvel and wonder in amazement at God. We worship and we fear and we trust God who created all things according to his will to display his glory to us. You think about the wonder of creation that we have one of the greatest tragedies, I think, is in between probably my childhood and the childhood of this generation just starting to grow up now. When we were kids, you know, my mom used to make me wait till 9 o'clock before I went outside. I don't know why. I just had to. So I sat in the kitchen and I'd watch the clock, right? And I just remember the ticker thing. You know, and you actually, if you watch it long enough, did you know you can actually see the hands move? It's true. And I stood there and I watched the minute hand slowly slide up and it just did, as soon as it hit nine, it was gone, you know. And I had to be back by five. And in Berwick in those days, there were, I don't know how many people, there weren't very many people in 1976, seven in Berwick. But I could go and play as far down as the, the creek and I could go and play as far over as, and I would, me and my friends would make billy carts and run up and down the streets and we just had so much freedom. And now today what happens, you see teenagers and young people and all they do is this, right, like, you know. I think I told you, I was in, walking past a, four girls sitting at a table. I don't mean to pick on the girls. And they're both, they're all doing this, right? And one looks up and goes, oh, I know. <laughs> they're texting each other, right? It's ridiculous. What's my point? My point is that we've become, the world and technology has so focused and zoomed our attention in on something so small and so tiny. And in my generation, and certainly in most of your generations, you're mostly older than me, you go outside and you saw the bigness of the sky. You saw the marvel and the wonder of all of creation. And God didn't just put it there because it was convenient. He had to fill up some space. So he threw in some grass and some trees and a few rivers and lakes and a big ocean and a bunch of fish. You know, there are, thing, there are things living on the bottom of the ocean floor that if they bring them up, the pressure release from no water around them, they would just fly apart. Some of the most brilliant colored creations. Why did God do it? Because he just had a joy. I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but I think there was a playfulness in God as he just created. Master craftsmanship. Look at some of the birds. One of the things we noticed coming from Canada to Australia, Canada's got a lot of beautiful things. The people from Canada are watching this, so I've got to say that for sure. And it does have a lot of beautiful things, but the birds... Sorry, guys, in Canada, there's nothing like the birds here in Australia. We saw those rosellas and the little, the, um, all the different brightly, brilliantly colored birds. You think there's God with his paint box, whips it open, pure red and pure blue and pure purple, and just whoosh, 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 making up something. We're to stand back and worship and fear and trust as we look all around creation. We just see the marvel and the wonder of God's creative ability. Why did he do it? He was free to do it, and he just decided, I'm going to show you what real master craftsmanship and what real artistic beauty looks like. And he spoke into existence. 
We worship and we fear and we trust in God who works to continually bring about all things according to the counsel of his will. We look at the society and go, ah, oh, it's going nuts, it's going mad. And God says, it's okay, I'm still working continually. I haven't stopped working to bring about everything according to the counsel of my will. And I'm working it all. God has a plan and he's working. Well, we say the plan you'll work and work your plan, right? So we used to say when we were building cabinets. God had a plan. He's working his plan. His plan is exactly on line. Not one minute behind, not one minute ahead, not one stitch out of line. God is working everything according to his plan. And he's going to bring it all to completion and culmination. And all the nations of the world, every single thing in existence will say that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. What a day it's going to be. We pray and we plead earnestly with God who raises up men and puts down men according to his will. We look at the governments around us and go, you just can't stand, understand why that guy's in power. And we look at Scott Morrison and go, praise God, you've raised up a Christian who's standing in power. And from what I can tell, he seems to be trying to govern on the basis of his Christian principles. And we go, praise God, in a country that just voted in, same-sex marriage, praise God, he raised up a man and put him in the government, the top of the power of Australia, I think, the top, the top politician anyway, who is a Christian man. And we go, wow, God is still in control. God knows exactly what he's doing. We pray and we plead earnestly. We trust God. You know what? It occurred to me as I was studying this afternoon, what reason do we have for fear? When we stop and really think about what God is doing, the reality is, and I suddenly thought, you know what, there is really no reason to fear whatsoever. Oh, but you know, what if, what if uh, I get hit by a truck? Well, that was God's plan and purpose. He allowed it to happen for his reasons, for your good and his glory. You don't have to fear that. What if this other thing, what if that, what if, you know, but, but you know, I, what if I go over there and this terrible thing happens? There's no reason for us to fear because God is in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has a plan, and he's working to bring it about. We worship and we love God who willed and worked the suffering and death of Christ to accomplish our salvation. Just the thought of that. Before they even created crucifixion, the psalmist wrote, pierced. I think Isaiah wrote it. Before they created crucifixion, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 22, my bones are out of joint. He wrote all those descriptions. And when they came true, God in his perfect sovereign plan worked the depravity of man's creation of a horrible torture way called crucifixion. He allowed it to happen. He allowed it to settle right in Jerusalem at just the right time. He put the Romans there. He put the Pilate there. And he put all those other men in place. He had everything worked out. And he raised up Judas. And he knew exactly what he was doing. And he did it in such a way that not once, not ever can God be charged with sin. He was working to bring about all the purposes of his plan, all his will put together. You stop and think of that and go, how, how could that happen? Because God is in control. And we stand back and we worship and we bow down and we love the Lord our God who did all that. We trust, we wholeheartedly commit ourselves entirely into God's hands who grants us to suffer according to his will. 
Again, I, I think I've told you before, driving in last week and even driving in today, thinking about suffering again. I'm pleading with God. When the day comes, when the hour arrives and they put a nail in the base of my wrist and threaten to drive it through my hand, nail me to a cross. Plead with God that in that moment I won't have the strength, only his strength, to endure and not to dishonor my Lord by turning away. We trust ourselves entirely into God's hands. We give thanks to God who has a free will by which he freely chose both to create the universe and to choose us and save a people for himself. What else can we do but give thanks? Not one inch of credit do we deserve for our salvation. It's all God's plan. We strive with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We sit down and we put time into God's word to understand his will, to know what that will is, to do as much as we can to fulfill in obedience what he requires, trusting him all the way that he's going to keep his promises. And you know what? You do go through this process and your hope is fueled up. Because as we read and see what God has in mind and what God has planned out, we realize the best is yet to come. There's so much more happening and coming that's so much better than what we can see in front of us. What an amazing God we have. Amen. I'm going to read this, that little part of the psalm again, then we'll close in prayer. In the first part, he says, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his possession. For I know that the Lord is great, that our God, our Lord, sorry, is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. And then verse 13, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nation, their silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. O house of Israel, verse 19, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. I think we can add, O house of Noble Park Baptist Church, bless the Lord. For we serve a wonderful God. Let's pray. Loving Father, this evening again we come before you. And Father, we've just taken a few minutes to look at your will. And how you exercise your will. And Father, it's just gripped my heart again to think about the freeness with which you chose to create all of creation. Nothing compelled you. Nothing restrained you. You desired that we should see the majesty of your glory. You created creatures to glorify you and be absolutely satisfied in you and in your glory. And Father, when creation, you knew that creation would go its own way. From eternity past, you put in place a plan whereby you would freely redeem and save a people for yourself. 
And Father, again, we look forward to that day when Christ will return. We will hear the shout. We will hear the, the voice of the archangel. Be caught up to meet with our Lord Jesus Christ. Change in a moment. All the work in us finished in a moment. And we will see Jesus. We will see the glory of our Savior and our Lord. And Father, we will just marvel and wonder. And for all of eternity, we will enjoy his presence. Unwavering, unshaken. Father, we thank you for such a great hope. A hope that goes beyond what we can see and what's happening down the road this week in jobs and school and, jo and places. Father, we ask you for this church. We plead with you, O oh God, that we as a people would be God-centered to the very core. Our lives focused on, trained in around the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of the living God. Father, give us eyes to see the glory of the Lord. Give us the faith to see it. Father, give us the diligence to open the scriptures and search through them, mining out every trace of gold and silver and diamonds and precious jewels to see something of your glory. Father, give us, in a sense, a holy dissatisfaction, always craving to know more of you, more of who you are. Father, we plead with you again that there would be a revival in this church. Father, deepen and strengthen and greatly enrich our love for you and our love for each other. Father, cause us to love one another with the love with which we have been loved. That Noble Park, as a community, will look at us and say there's something different about those people over there. They love one another. Father, we cry out to you for a revival. Father, save the lost. Build up and strengthen the saints. Encourage those who are downcast and discouraged. Father, we seek your blessing for the week that's ahead, Lord, for some that will travel many miles away, for others, Lord, facing health issues and hospital visits and all of those sorts of things. Father, we think again of Heather's family anticipating the going home of their dad. Father, too, for Paul Sullivan, watching as his dad also is in palliative care, waiting for him to go home. Father, we ask you for their families, these families, that you would give them the strength. Father, for Heather's family, as they know he is going home to glory, Father, we pray that you would give them a sense of joy in saying so long for now. And Father, we look forward with great anticipation to one day seeing him and others who have gone ahead of us in the glorified state. Father, what a joy it's going to be to be together again with brothers and sisters who have gone on ahead. Father, we seek your blessing and we give you thanks. Father, too, for the food and the refreshment that's been prepared, Lord, we give thanks for that, too. And, Father, as we enjoy some fellowship, may our thoughts not wander too far away from you. Father, we ask you these things and we give thanks in Jesus' name.